There was a, a man who uh, rarely prayed. In fact, he thought pretty much spiritual stuff was boring. And so it was Sunday morning, he decided to go hunting. Well, he's out hunting, he's got his gun loaded, and he's walking up a ridge and pulls himself over this little hill, and he's standing nose to nose with a huge grizzly bear. And it so startles him that the man falls backwards and loses his gun, rolls down the hill, and breaks his leg. The bear comes bounding up to the guy, drooling. The man knows it's all over. So he says, Lord, I'll do whatever you want me to do if you just make sure that this bear is a Christian bear. (laughs) And no sooner did he end his prayer when the bear got down on his knees and folded his paws and bowed his head and he said, Lord, bless this food to the nourishment of my body. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know what your view of prayer is. A lot of people wonder about its actual effectiveness. Does it do any good? Is it for virtually anyone to practice? A lot of people, when they hear the word prayer, automatically they think, Boring. And I'll tell you why I say that, because if you look at the average attendance of the average church prayer meeting across our country, you find that many people don't attend them unless it's a time of national crisis. You have a Gulf War, you have a 9-11, churches will be packed, we got to pray. But for the most part, it's not seen as an enjoyable exercise. Part of the problem isn't that prayer is boring, it's that we're boring. that we in our prayer life will um, sink back into predictable patterns of prayer. Uh, We lose the spontaneity. We lose the freshness. We use the same phrases. It's like we study people who pray and we learn what they say and we go, that sounds cool. I'm going to do that next time. One author writing about prayer said, I dare you to pray without using the words bless or lead, guide, and direct or help so-and-so or thy will or each and every or any number of those institutionalized, galvanized terms, I dare you. Here's your homework assignment. Within this week, find a brand new Christian somewhere and pray with them and listen to them. They haven't learned how to do it yet. They don't speak Christianese very well yet. It takes a while. And just listen to how fresh it is. I think that how you pray depends on how you view God. If you view God as stingy, it'll reflect in the way you communicate to him. If you view God as generous, that'll reflect as well. If your God is big or if your God is small, that will determine how you and I communicate with God. I remember the time when my son, several years ago, when we were living in New Mexico, it was nighttime and he prayed that God would cause it to snow over the entire state so that he wouldn't have to go to school the next day. And I thought, okay, he has a little bit to learn that life doesn't revolve around him yet. But still, his view of God is that God can cause it to snow everywhere so I don't have to go to school. He had this huge idea of who God is. And as we discover in Matthew chapter 7, prayer works. Under the right conditions, prayer works. 
And that's what I want to speak to you today about, talking to the God who answers prayer. The paragraph begins in verse 7 down to verse 11, and originally I was going to tackle all those verses, but I thought we'd do it in two parts. This is part one. Next week will be part two, and I'm going to cover all of two verses today and speak to you about um, about these verses. Let's read verse 7 and 8 so we get the background. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. This morning, I want to talk to you about just a couple different things. The promise and the prerequisites of answered prayer. The promise and the prerequisites. Now, you you notice something about the promise that is given in verse 7 and 8 that it's attached to something. It's attached to a command. Jesus doesn't begin with an invitation or a suggestion, but this is, in the Greek, a present active imperative. In other words, he is making a commandment to pray. Do this. Ask, that's a command. Seek, that's a command. Knock, that's a command. I'm sort of amazed in the Bible how often we find either strong invitations or counseling or sometimes commandments by God to us to pray. For instance, Jeremiah 33, verse 3, is another command. Call unto me, and I will answer you, and I will show you great and mighty things which you know not. But again, God commands his people to pray. Question. Why on earth would God ever need to order us to talk to him? You'd think that prayer would be the most natural thing for a believer, right? Well, I think there's a few reasons. Reason number one is sometimes we forget that we can pray. We forget that we have this incredible resource called communicating with God. And so that's why we try everything first, and when all else fails... We say something like, there's nothing left for me to do. I guess I'm going to have to pray. Like, oh no, it's gotten that bad. You're actually praying about it? Wow. You see, we have relegated prayer to a last resort. But if we'd make it our first resort, it would never have to become our last resort. So we're commanded to pray in part because we forget we can Here's another reason. Sometimes people neglect praying out of sheer pride. You ask somebody, can I pray for you? Nope, I'm fine, I'm okay. I really need it, but I'm saying, no, I'll be fine. Instead of humbling yourself and saying, yeah, I really need prayer. A third reason that people need to be commanded to pray is because, frankly, a lot of people are ignorant when it comes to prayer, thinking that, a special person has to do it, or it has to be done in a special place, like a church. You mean God can actually answer prayers in offices? On a surfboard? Out at the beach in a park while I'm driving down the road? There's sort of a joke in Israel. We talked about a tour to Israel 
But sometimes the tour guides will tell you if you go to Jerusalem and you're encouraged to go to the Western Wall and it's where a lot of people congregate. Traditionally, Jews have congregated there because it's the remains of the Temple Mount. And they'll say something like, you know, God can answer prayers anywhere, but it's most effective in Jerusalem and it's especially effective here at the Temple Mount because here, they say, it's a local call. As if God hangs out here, you're home with God. It's a local call. But the Bible would tell us that because Jesus died, was buried, and rose again, and is at the right hand of the Father, for every one of his kids anywhere, it's a local call. And there's a fourth reason I think we're commanded to pray. Because sometimes we just want to give up. We're in such despair, and we think, what good will it do anyway? I've already tried it. I've asked a lot of people to pray. And at those times, God would say, ask. That's a command. Seek. That's a command. Knock. And the door will be open. You know, we sort of have this thinking that, well, you know, God is God. And that means he's running the universe. That's an awfully busy job. I don't want to have to bug God. He's running the universe. And besides You know, important people like Billy Graham might be talking to him right now. As if God's going to go, oh, can't talk anymore. Put that on hold. Billy's calling. Charles Spurgeon wrote, Prayer pulls the rope down below and the great bell rings above in the ears of God. Some scarcely stir the bell, for they pray so languidly. Others give only an occasional jerk on the rope. But he who communicates with heaven is the man who grasps the rope boldly and pulls continually with all his might. Isn't that a great picture? What does it say in Hebrews 4? Come timidly, come trepidously, come fearfully. No, it says, therefore, come boldly before the throne of grace that you might obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I love what George Mueller, who ran that orphanage in Bristol, England, years ago, a great giant of prayer, he said, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It's laying a hold of God's willingness. Thus, the command to pray. So, Keep that in mind. Next time you think, oh, I'm praying for stuff for myself. That's so selfish. Just remember Jesus commanded you to ask, commanded you to seek, and commanded you to knock. Now, there's something else implied in this promise. Not only the nature of uh, prayer, not only the nature of the promise that he gave, but the nature of the promise giver. As I read verse 7 and 8, it strikes me that I'm dealing with a God who wants to give, who desires to bless. It's, it's like I picture, here's our Father with this armful of resources, just kind of waiting for us to ask that he might bestow. Because notice, ask and it will, not might, will be given. Seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened. Why is that? Because that's his nature. You know, when a kid asks his dad for something, it will be based upon 
what that kid knows his dad's nature and temperament to be. If he knows his dad has a bad temper when he asks for something, he's going to be very, very cautious. If dad says, what do you want now? He's not going to be very free with his requests, is he? But if that son or that daughter knows that dad is gracious and in touch and not aloof and loving and willing, that kid's going to ask for the moon. Come boldly. And people will pray according to their view of God. For instance, how confident do you think the Greeks were when they prayed to their pantheon of deities? They had many gods. If you know Greek mythology, the gods of the Greeks were capricious. They were um, uh, hostile, volatile. You never knew where you stood with them. They acted like a bunch of little kids. There's a story that one of the gods named Prometheus took pity on mankind and gave to man on earth fire to warm himself. When Zeus, the chief of the gods, heard that Prometheus actually did a favor for people on earth, Zeus had Prometheus chained to a rock in the Adriatic Sea and commanded vultures to pick out its liver. That's their idea of God, or at least the chief god, Zeus. Another story of Aurora, the goddess of the dawn, fell in love with a mortal named Tinnitus, and she asked Zeus for sort of a wedding gift, and Zeus said that he would give to her mortal lover anything that he requested. She requested that he be given eternal life, or that is, that he'd never die. So Zeus granted her request. What she failed to ask for is that he would be forever young. So in granting the request, sort of tongue-in-cheek, the blessing became a curse because this guy, as the myth goes, lived forever and ever and ever, growing old, never able to die. Now, shift from the pagan ideology of the gods, plural, to the Jewish thinking of God, singular, monotheism. Jews at the time of Christ though they believed in the majesty and holiness of God and had a grand, transcendent view of God, their God was aloof and distant and unapproachable. Most of Judaism made God inaccessible. There was, first of all, a veil that separated the holy place in the temple to the holy of holies, though only the priest could go once a year. And what I love is that when Jesus died on the cross... The Bible says the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, not bottom to top. In other words, God could only reach that high, grabbed it and ripped it, so to speak, saying, you don't have to be afar anymore. You can come near. The tragedy is that after Jesus died and rose from the dead, the story says the Jews sewed the veil back up. Isn't that just like mankind? God says, Open the way. Man goes, oh, no, 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 no. We have to be more religious yet. Sew it back up. Then in the temple, there were courts and there were walls. And one of the walls that didn't allow non-Jews, Gentiles, to go any further, the wall had a sign on it, death to any Gentile past this point. So they were kept at bay. They were afar off. The point that Jesus is making, at least one of the points, is that God as Father 
isn't some taskmaster in heaven with his arms folded saying, what do you want now? But the nature of the promise giver is that he says, I will do it. It will be given. You will receive. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, Paul writes, Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, who calls out, Abba, Father. Abba is that intimate term for Papa or Daddy. We have a relationship with him. So never tolerate the thought that God doesn't answer prayer. It is against his very nature. Okay, that's the, that's the promise. Now there's some prerequisites. You'll notice in verse 8, I just want to draw your attention to this. Jesus says, for everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be open. Now you read that and you might think, well, there are no prerequisites to prayer. As long as you fit in the category of everyone or anyone, you just ask and it'll be done, right? Just seems like it's carte blanche. But the everyone here has a context. There are prerequisites. Prerequisite number one, this applies to God's kids, God's children. I want you to go back to chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, to be reminded of something. Because you notice when you turn back, you notice all the red letters? That means Jesus has been talking all this time. The black letters are only the first two verses. They give you some context. It says, Seeing the multitudes, he, Jesus, went up onto a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and now it's all red letters. So who is Jesus saying this to? His disciples, not the crowds. Yeah, the multitudes were around, but Jesus seats, his followers come around him, and he teaches them, saying, them are the disciples. Them disciples are around him. And so back in chapter 7, When he says, ask and it will be given to you, that's to you, my disciples. Seek and you, my disciples, will find. Knock and it will be opened to you, my disciples. For every one of my disciples who asks, receives. And to he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Did you know that 70% of Americans pray every week? And 57% of Americans pray every day? You go, that's great. It's revival. No, it's not. I submit to you that of all those Americans that pray, for many, it's an absolute waste of time. It might make them feel good, but it's it's like they're talking into a phone, but it's not connected. Have you ever had the embarrassing situation of you're talking to somebody and you, you're having a conversation and suddenly you realize... We've been disconnected for the last five minutes. I've been talking into the air. Not a word is registered. And maybe if you're on long enough, I'm sorry, the party you're wanting is no longer connected. You think, great. That's how prayer is for a lot of people. 
they'll, they'll talk to God and they'll say all sorts of things. And it's like, I'm sorry, the God that you're talking to is no longer on the line. There's something blocking. Look down at verse 11. I'll explain. If you then, being evil, and I'll explain that next week what it means, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? See, He has to be your Father in heaven. And the only way He can be your Father in heaven is if you follow His Son, because it says in John's Gospel, whoever has the Son has the Father. Whoever doesn't have the Son doesn't have the Father. So you follow Jesus Christ, the Son, you have a relationship with the Father. And some of you, in hearing that, might say, well, isn't God the Father of everyone? Well, sort of, but no. He is the Father of everyone creatively, in that God made everyone and everything, but He's not the Father of everyone redemptively. The Bible says, as many as received Jesus, to them he gave the power to become children of God, to those who believe in, trust on, rely on his name. In uh, Isaiah chapter 59 is a very important text. God is speaking to his people who had been praying and offering sacrifices and going to the temple. And God says to them, my hand is not short that it cannot save, neither is my ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your sins have separated between you and your God that I cannot hear or that I will not hear. So a person's first prayer, in order for this prayer to work, The first prayer must be, God, forgive me of my sins. I give my life to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior because prayer is a family privilege. So prerequisite number one, this applies to his kids. Prerequisite number two, this applies to God's dependent kids. Notice by reading this promise that it's not automatic. Jesus doesn't say, if you're one of my kids... It'll be given to you. If you're one of my kids, automatically doors will be open for you. No, it says, ask, seek, knock. What does James say? You have not because you ask not. Oh, so I actually have to ask. I have to vocalize. I have to verbalize either out loud or in my heart. Or what does Paul write in Philippians chapter 4? Let your requests be made known unto God. Now, here's a question. Why do I have to ask God? Why do I have to let my requests be made known to God if God already knows what I'm going to ask before I do it? I'm going to answer it this way. God loves dependence. God loves weakness. I grew up and my father used to say, The Bible says God helps those who help themselves. I thought it was true. I thought the Bible actually said that until I read the Bible. And I found out it doesn't say that. No, you know who said it? Ben Franklin said it. You know what the Bible says? God helps the helpless. And prayer vocalizes your dependence upon God. And God loves it. In 1934, there was a film called The Barretts of Wimpole Street, and I think it was released again in the 50s based on a story of the same title. 
two of the chief characters, Robert and his wife Elizabeth, are having a conversation. And Elizabeth turns to Robert and she says, Robert, how can you love me when I'm so weak? And he smiles and says, Elizabeth, my strength needs your weakness just as much as your weakness needs my strength. And remember, Paul the Apostle prayed that God would heal him. He prayed three times. And the Lord spoke to him and said, My strength is made perfect in your weakness. So when you pray, you're humbling yourself and you're admitting, I really am weak. God, I need you. God loves that dependence. So the prerequisites so far are twofold. This applies to God's kids. This applies to God's dependent kids. Number three, this applies to God's persistent kids. Ask, seek, knock. Remember just a few minutes ago I mentioned that this is a command. It's called the present active imperative. You don't have to remember that or you don't have to write it down. But... I do want to explain something to you, so listen carefully. In the Greek language, there's a couple of ways to express a command. One is called an aorist imperative. One is called this present imperative. An aorist imperative simply means a command to do something once and then it's, it's over. A present imperative is the idea of making it a regular lifestyle. For instance, I would give you a command, not that I really would, but if I said, go to dental school, I would use an aorist imperative, meaning you only got to go once, then you get licensed. You don't have to go three or four or five or six, 20 times, and you go once, it's over. But if I were to give you the command, brush your teeth daily, or brush your teeth every day, or we'll put it this way, brush your teeth in the morning, how's that? I would use the present imperative. When I say brush your teeth in the morning, I don't mean brush it once and then for four years you don't have to do it because you already did it. Can you imagine your son or daughter saying, what do you mean brush my teeth in the morning? I did it five years ago. It's done. I would use the present imperative, meaning do it over and over and over again. Let it become a lifestyle. That's what's used here. Ask and continue to do so. Seek and continue to seek. Knock and keep on knocking. Uh, Kenneth Weiss, who put out a translation of the Greek language uh, in a very literal way, translates these verses this way. Listen up. Keep on asking for something to be given, and it shall be given to you. Keep on seeking, and you shall find. Keep on reverently knocking, and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who keeps on asking for something keeps on receiving. And he who keeps on seeking keeps on finding. And to him who keeps on reverently knocking, it shall be opened. Now this is important. Because I've heard certain Christian teachers tell me, you should only pray for something once. And if you really pray by faith, you don't have to bring it up before God ever again. You prayed about it once. Well... I read my Bible and I find that Paul the Apostle in 2 Corinthians 12 prayed for his thorn in the flesh, his bodily weakness, to be taken away three times until finally God said, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. I find as I read the Bible that Jesus spoke about a widow who continually came 
before that unjust judge. And Jesus used that illustration and he made this point in Luke chapter 18. Don't you think that God will surely give justice to his chosen people who plead with him day and night? Okay, go back. This applies to God's kids. This applies to God's dependent children. This applies to God's uh, persistent kids. There's a fourth. This applies to God's vigilant kids. Vigilant kids. Notice in verse 7 there's a progression of intensity. It suggests that our requests can't be passive. It's not that we just ask for something and sit back and kind of look around and watch stuff happen. But we begin by asking. We then move into phase two, takes us into seeking, and then eventually we're knocking. We're more aggressive. Example. Let's say I say, God, I need a job. Does that mean you sit home the rest of the day and get out the binger and go channel surfing? I already prayed about it. Now I'm going to have fun. No, it means you ask God for a job. Now you look for one. Yeah, yeah, you got to cooperate with God. You know, I actually did that one time. I was a brand new Christian and I needed a job. And my prayer was this, Lord, give me a job. Here's my words, any job. And I'll do it from my heart. I'll serve you with that job. I got one. It was out in Victorville, California at Jess Turkey Ranch. It was a long conveyor belt of turkeys getting where they raised turkeys, they slaughtered turkeys, and they packaged them for Thanksgiving, and I was on the conveyor belt. The guy in front of me, I think, cut the feet off, got it for me. I put it on the turkey hook, and that's what I did all day, like this. And You know, listen, after 30 seconds, it gets old. I quit after the first day. I went in with some flaky excuse. I don't feel led to be here anymore. And I just, I quit. The next day I woke up and you know what I prayed? God, give me a job, any job. I'll serve you my whole heart. And you see, I was asking, but I really wasn't seeking. I wasn't really knocking. I wasn't cooperating. Finally, this applies to God's compliant kids. Applies to God's kids, God's dependent kids, God's persistent kids, God's vigilant kids. This promise applies to God's compliant kids. What do I mean? This is what I mean. What if you pray boldly, you come in confidence, you pray repetitively, you keep on asking, you keep on seeking, you keep on knocking, and you even cooperate, you work hard and you're vigilant and cooperative with the prayer, and it still doesn't work. What then? Well, it could be that you're aiming wrong. You need to change your aim. Say, Skip, what do you mean? Well, James says in James 4, you have not because you ask not. But then he said this, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you might spend what you get on your pleasures. So here's my point. Aim at the glory of God, not at your own glory, not at your own kingdom. By the way, this just brings up a point. When we talk about answered prayer, be careful that you don't think that the only way God answers prayer is with a yes. 
Sometimes God says no. Did you know that no is an answer? So don't run around saying, God never answers my prayer. Well, he said no. That's a legitimate answer. The question is why? And sometimes it's because we're not aiming at the glory of God. We're aiming for our own kingdom. Prayer changes things. It really does work. That's the whole idea behind this promise. Ask, seek, knock. It will be given. Everyone, anyone who does that, fulfilling these prerequisites. Yes, prayer will change things. But you know, prayer will change you. And perhaps that's the greatest effect, is what it does for you personally in depending on your Father. It changes your perspective about life. I found this little poem. Sunday the sermon was sluggish, was hard attention to keep. The theme was faultly chosen. It almost put me to sleep. Monday was blue with boredom. Tuesday was carnal by choice. Wednesday my conscience awakened my pleas from a still, small voice. The prayer meeting left me uplifted, loyalty lingering long. Thursday my heart was responding. Friday his nudging was strong. I came to thorough repentance the following Saturday. I yielded in full surrender as all on the altar I lay. Sunday, the sermon was perfect, superb, and quite at its peak. Amazing how greatly that preacher improved in the space of one week. (laughs) What changed? The person changed. The perspective changed. The dependence changed. The person changed. The perspective changed. The dependence changed. 